Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio here with the Reverend C.L. Bryant. He is the host of the C.L. Bryant Show, founding member of the American Voice PAC, senior fellow at Freedom Works, and the host of the powerful documentary Runaway Slave from Tyranny to Liberty. You can check him out at the C.L. Bryant, B R Y A N T show.com and twitter.com forward slash Rev C.L. Bryant. C.L., thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm really glad to be on with you, and thank you so much for having me. Now, you seem to have missed the memo, and I don't mean, of course, to tell you about the black experience in America, but you seem to have missed the memo that come from the Democrats. And the memo runs something like this. It's all racism all the time. That is the only problem faced by blacks. They apparently seem helpless to fix their own situation without the outside Democrats riding in to save the day. Um, Did you see that memo? Do you disagree with that memo? What's your perspective? I saw that memo most of my life. I grew up in the segregated South. I am the former president of the NAACP Garland, Texas, 25 years ago. And that memo was one that, of course, for 60 years, black people did, in fact, hear from the Democrat Party. And so I have seen both sides of this street, like a person who's eaten hamburger and who's eaten filet mignon. If you uh, of a certain taste, you know that filet mignon is better. And so at least for me. And so conservatism and the conservative principles of this country, when I've eaten of the liberal experience, I found that the conservative agenda was much better for who I was as a black man in this country. Now, it seems to me that the black community should have some reasonable affinity with conservatism, because, of course, uh, having seen the family shattered under slavery, having seen, you know, Jim Crow and and, um, segregation and so on, the need for community and, of course, Christianity, which is quite a conservative friendly, uh, if not conservative centered religious approach. Where do you think the deviation has occurred in the black community, leading them more towards the left, leading them more towards Democrats and away from community, family and Christian roots? It was the idea that we're all the same. Back in the 60s, uh, there was a move toward us getting an equal share, a level playing field and equal outcome and all of that type of thing was indeed uh, the message to the black community. And when you start thinking that you're the same as the person next to you, and quite frankly, the experience for quite some time was the same. Most black people were financially in the same boat, but all people, regardless of color of your skin, are different. They're they're diverse. Families are different. But once uh, you start marching to the, the, the sound and acting to the actions or reacting to the same actions of the same drummer, then you are able to create a monolith. And our vote became monolithic. And because of that, it was not optimal for us at all. The Democrats took us for granted and the Republicans didn't care. And so that is where we got off. With our core, black people are conservative. Black people love Jesus, just to, just to, to, to say that. Uh, we are Christians. And there are certain social values now that our grandparents see us embracing, or if they were alive, could see us embracing, that they would certainly wonder why this is a trend that we have gone to instead of the type of ideals and 
moral codes that they themselves adhere to. This is one of the great frustrations, uh, of course, of people who look at uh, various groups within America and say, okay, well, in the post-Second World War period, you know, Blacks fought in the Second World War, you got the GI Bill, which got a lot of education. There was a, a renaissance. There was more Blacks moving into the middle class than at any time before in American history. And this upward progress, this updraft towards greater equality and equity it seems to me kind of like the 60s turned that around. It kind of plowed it under, whether it was the, the, the welfare state, whether I don't know whether the, the sort of increasing co-opting of black causes by leftists. I don't know exactly what it was. I'm sure you have some insights, but it seems like things were for once heading in the right direction. And it didn't seem to last more than 10 or 15 years before things turned back to uh, a negative direction. Let me let me share this with you. I, I speak across this country. I crisscross this nation once a month, almost every month, speaking at various events throughout the nation. And there's uh, uh, something that I include in my um, presentation that I want to share with your audience. And that is this. During the early 70s, there came a movement to make them laugh, make America laugh. And they created certain characters and shows that were designed to do that. But in a way, it was diabolical, and I'll, I'll give you an idea of what happened. You remember All in the Family, uh, uh, The Good Times with J.J., Dinah Kid, Dynamite Walker, uh, The Jeffersons, Pico and the Man, and those types of shows. All of them were good and as far as entertainment was concerned, but there was a message to Black America and to America itself in those shows. I'll take The Jeffersons, for instance. There you had George Jefferson an upwardly mobile black man, worked his way out of the ghetto, and he moved on up to the east side to that deluxe apartment in the sky. Don't don't but don't once, put that song in my head, man. Uh, I saw it growing up. I get that song in my head. I won't be able to concentrate on anything else for the rest of the conversation, but go ahead. <laughs> and so there he was in, in, in the apartment in the sky. Now, he was still angry. Who was he angry with? He was angry at the stereotype that we were painting of Archie Bunker. And the names that he was calling Archie indicated that he was still angry at him, even though he had managed by the sweat of his brow and the work of his hand to pull himself out of that type of situation. Now, on the other hand, you have J.J. Walker, a happy-go-lucky kid in the inner city of Chicago. Black kids began to emulate that all of them should have the type of persona that J.J. Walker had. And even black men who have made it were being programmed to think that they should still be angry at the white man because George Jefferson was. He had an opportunity right after Dr. King's death to, as you were saying, break out of that type of thinking. We had an opportunity to become like the Irishman, to become like the Italian. We had that opportunity, but we were herded into a, a corral and we were fed this message that if we don't do this together, if we don't all succeed together, then we're not going to succeed at all. And that has been the mantra of the Democrat Party that you become our mascots and we'll make sure that all of your boats rise together. That is a diabolical plot that they have 
played on black people then and they're still playing it on them now. And it's a funny thing too, Seattle, because when I grew up, the black friends that I had, they were pretty conservative. I mean, more conservative than I was in my youth. They came sort of stable two-parent households. Their, their parents were professionals. They had nice houses. They, you know, one of them was like the, the, the head uh, saxophone player in, in the school band and, and great, and one of the most popular kids uh, in, in my school. And it's funny because my initial experience of uh, hanging out with black friends was that they were pretty conservative and religious and solid and stable, middle-class values and so on. I didn't get this sort of seething anger stuff. We would talk about race from time to time, but it was sort of a in more incidental subject. And then when I got older, the black voices that come in through the mainstream media seem to almost purposefully exclude those kinds of voices as what, not radical enough, not angry enough, not divisive enough, not whatever. But there is a great deal of silence, uh, a sort of blackout silence, so to speak, from conservative black voices in the media, which is really frustrating because they're there and they've got wonderful things to say, like yourself. The reason you don't hear the story of Frederick Douglass, the reason you don't um, see um, a, a epic movie about Frederick Douglass is because he's not black enough for this particular experience that we live in America today. And black people, for whatever reason, uh, don't realize that there's large portions, successful portions of our past history that are not recognized by the progressive liberal media. And Frederick Douglass is one of them. He, he uh, was an escaped slave, of course, and he died what by today's standards would be a multimillionaire. And uh, most people don't realize that, but they don't uh, ever address the fact that we never talk about Douglass. We never talk about Frederick Douglass. And Matt Turner, yeah. Frederick Douglass. <laughs> well, that's that's the divide in in some of the black intellectuals, which is around: Are we going to try and fix our own communities and and sort of arise by by hard effort, hard work? Uh, you know, if we start from a disadvantage, well, that just means we have to work harder and be better, and and so on. That's sort of the one example, and the other is. You know, are you going to get your resources from trading in the free market, from developing your human capital, from being an entrepreneur, or are you going to get your resources from creating this edifice of white racism and then de demanding that the government give you resources as compensation? And I think these two divides are really creating a big split, not just within the black community, but within American communities as a whole. One of the things, uh, and, and you, you definitely alluded to it uh, right then. One of the things that uh, we forget also, my grandfather was an illiterate man. Uh, he would not have been able to read his name on the, my, my name on the back of his wall if, uh, if he was still alive. Um, in fact, he was the first CL. Uh, and that comes from him not being able to spell. So he gave all the boy children initials for names. Hmm. And it's a great story behind that. But, but anyway, there was no affirmative action. Uh, for this illiterate man, but he used his skills as a woodcutter to start a pulpwood cutting business. And that's for the paper mill. He was able to buy trucks, three of them. He hired 15 men. Now, all of this was back in the days before affirmative action. All of this was back when if it didn't rain, the crops were not going to come in. And if you didn't work hard, you were not going to eat. What I think black people have forgotten is that we are the people who have survived slavery. 
We were not victims. We are victors. But the progressive liberals have actually made victims of people who have as a legacy of their existence in this country victorious stories. And we don't tell those stories. We just want to dwell and uh, roll around in the ideas of what they did to us, not in the ideas of how we overcame all of that through hard work and perseverance, just like the Irish, just like the Italians, just like anyone else in this country. We have survived it, but we don't tell that story. Well, that would give, of course, a kind of pride and a resilience that would make dependence on government programs a violation of that very pride and resilience and that dangling of free stuff in the face of not just blacks, but various communities. You know, here, give us your vote. We'll give you free stuff. I mean, that decays families, that decays neighborhoods, that decays the work ethic uh, and uh, I think triggers women to choose less productive and honorable men to be the fathers of their children because they're guaranteed resources from the state so they can, uh, I guess, um, they can uh, indulge in uh, shallow lust rather than looking for quality of character for a provider for their children. And it leads to a form of slavery. And what progressive liberals have found is that the slave does not necessarily seek freedom. The slave seeks comfort, a softer bed to lay on, more food in its bowl, a roof that doesn't leak, an Obama phone. If, if, in fact, <laughs> if in fact you provide the comfort, the slave sometimes is very much content with remaining in the slavery. If you just make it easier for him to be a slave. And that's what progressive liberalism has done, as you have described with the, the black woman and the black man. Uh, in, in modern day America. And America doesn't realize that there was a time with the um, uh, attitudes that our grandparents and great grandparents had. Uh, they actually had moments when the black marriage rate was higher than the white marriage rate. There was a time when it was an absolute disgrace for your child as a black family to go to jail or be found to be a drug addict. That was an absolute disgrace. Why? Because you were not being a credit to the race. That was actually uh, a, a, a living, breathing statement when I was growing up in segregated schools. We want you to become a credit to the race. You don't even hear that anymore. In fact, that may actually be insulting to some uh, who might hear that. Uh, and, and the word colored, we, we were we're very happy with being called people of color, but we don't want to hear the word colored. That is actually something that is absolutely insane. And reading the stories of how black communities used to function 20s, 30s and 40s, when, of course, racism was more of a potent force in society, there was certainly less pushback against it. Uh, reading Dr. Thomas Sowell's last column uh, before he retired, where he was talking about, you know, he went to visit a Holland school not too long ago. And, you know, there's metal detectors, bars on the windows and so on. And he says, oh, yeah, you know, it was really hot. We used to sleep out on our balconies. We used to sleep out on our front porch. We used to sleep out on the roof when it was really hot. And people are like, 
what are you crazy? And he was, he was talking about, oh yeah, that park, that park over there, that's where I used to play when I was a kid. And the kids were all like, play when you were a kid, you go over there, you get stabbed in the eyeball by a junkie. Like how much and how rapidly and how catastrophically, and it's not just the black community, uh, Lord knows the white community is going the same way as far as uh, unwed motherhood goes, but this decay and, and collapse of formerly highly functional, as you point out, more functional than a lot of white communities, highly functional communities, in less than a century, have been reduced to these war zones. And it, it, it has. And the pride of ownership, the pride of community is no longer there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm 61 years old and um, I was um, nine years old, eight, nine years old in 64, 65, when the Civil Rights uh, Acts were legislation was, was passed. I've actually drank from the colored and, and white water fountains. And I got to tell you, uh, the water in both of them is the same. I used to drink from the, the white water fountains purposely just to see what the big deal was. And there, there is none. There is no, no big deal. Riding on the back of the bus, I remember what that was about. Being called the N-word by people who know how to say it and the intent behind saying it in those times, it was truly to be dehumanizing, not out of anger, but there was an intent behind it. The same type of intent, I might add, that rappers, gangster rappers, use in their music today. There is an intent behind what they are saying, and it's very much the same intent that was used toward Black people by white folks back in the day. It's being used by by progressive liberals in that way. Now, uh, my whole point in saying that is that there has been a design to actually diminish womanhood and the black male among the black male, especially when you look at the evil, in my view and in my discipline of abortion. It diminishes life. And if you cannot respect life inside the womb, then life outside the womb walking down the streets of Chicago is absolutely meaningless as well. And that is an astonishing fact, uh, CL, that I remember reading that a, a black baby conceived in the womb in modern day America, this year 2017, has only a 50-50 chance of being born. That we got a 50% right. abortion rate, 50% killing unborn children in the womb. Now, I don't care what your views are on abortion, well, I kind of do, but the, the point is there is no sane person in the universe, no matter what your views on abortion, who thinks that is a good situation, that is a fine place for a community to be. And this callousness towards the unborn. I mean, we have it in general in society. We, we burden everyone, all the unborn with national debts because we're too greedy to pay the taxes for all the goodies we want to vote for. But this visceral destruction of life in the womb, 50% chance, uh, that is truly astonishing and not much talked about. Let's take it a step further. Black folks are only 13% of the population, well, 12.7% of the population in this country. Abortion of black babies is 43% in this country. How is it possible that uh, we're so upside down in that figure if there was not some type of design in uh, that heinous practice? 
How is it possible that black men who are only 6.5% of the population in America account for nearly 60% of all the violent crimes in this country? What has happened here? And how come we have football players kneeling uh, and uh, denigrating police officers who many times can't go into the black community and help out that poor black mother or grandparent who's trapped in a situation where they are held hostage to the black criminal in his own community? How come we're not protesting that? But we're protesting the, 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 the arbiters of law and order in those communities. There is something that has been perpetrated, a design that has been perpetrated upon the black community that they themselves have bought so deeply into. It is like uh, a Stockholm syndrome victim that when the liberators come to take them away, and you mentioned Dr. Thomas Sowell, He's in my film. Uh, he and uh, Al, uh, uh, Andrew Breitbart are, are in my film. When we come to liberate them, we're actually the enemy because the identity now is not with the liberators, it's with the captives. Hmm. This issue, I think, is, is something that is one of the great heartbreaking issues of the modern time, which is that when you look at black crime rates, and of course, you know, I mean, if you're going to talk about, you know, 50, 60% of the violent crime, we're really talking about a subsection of young black men. You know, it's really two or 3% of the population. I mean, it's not like people your age are doing a lot of that kind of stuff or my age for that matter. And so this has become one of the great tragedies, which is, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I saw blacks in, in, in ties going to work and, and having great conversations and being interested. And just look at the music, too. I mean, get a, the music is a whole big deal. One of my favorite singers is Sam Cooke. The guy came from a gospel tradition, Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers and so on, and, and, and brought, uh, you know, beauty and, and grace and great, powerful lyrics and uplifting messages and so on. And this has kind of devolved now into, you know, you, you got, you know, 50 Cent rapping about some god-awful thing, and it really does kind of toxicify the culture. And now, uh, black crime, uh, young black male crime, is to such a degree and such an extent that people, I think, have statistically legitimate concerns, legitimate fears. And it's now, because if everyone's acting the same, then prejudice, of course, is bigotry and racism. But if you have a group of people who are acting significantly differently and more dangerously, my concern is that reinforces people's fears. And they say, well, statistically, I have reason to fear. What was it? Jesse Jackson, who said, after 20 years of trying to heal race relations, I hear footsteps behind me on a street. I turn around and I'm relieved if it's white people, if it's not black people. That is now the data is coming into the point where people can say, well, there's reason to be afraid. And how tragic and how horrifying a missed opportunity is that? Sure, it is. Um, I've been preaching the gospel now for 40 years uh, in, in this country. Uh, came in on the heels of Dr. King. Uh, my parents were uh, civil rights activists. In fact, when, when Dr. King spoke at my home church here in Shreveport, Louisiana, Galilee Baptist Church back in 1959, I was only three, four years old, but I was there with my mother that night. And uh, don't remember it, but I do remember the type of people that were there. They were very serious people. And every uh, Black person, black male model in my life, including my father, they had some type of job. They, that was the example that I had. 
even if it was being the yard man or whatever, they had a job. What I'm saying is there was a time when the gospel of the church and the gospel of America was very much in tune to one another. Dr. King was one who was able to carry both of those gospels uh, to a black community. I do my very best to emulate uh, his method when I am on the road and when I am speaking. If you get a chance, I just Google some of the speeches that I have done. Of course, I'm me. That was Dr. King was Dr. King. But the idea of letting folks know just how great not only your God is, but how great a country your God has given you to take advantage of is a very important thing that black people are missing in this relationship that we should have with the greatest nation on the face of the earth and the greatest success story the world has ever known, not realizing that we have it by birthright, this type of opportunity. Jamaicans come here and are very uh, prosperous. Nigerians come here and are very prosperous. How is it that those of us, in my case, who have been here since the 1700s, don't take the same advantage of people with the same skin color? How is it that a Kenyan like Barack Obama can become president of the United States, but Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton get it twisted? How is it possible that that happens? That is where we're off track. We don't understand the gospel of America. When either, either as a group or as individuals, when we have suffered under great wrong, when that wrong is at least to some degree cured or addressed or ameliorated, there is to me a fork in the road. There's a great temptation. If someone has done me great wrong and then works to ameliorate that wrong, then I can look deep in the rear view at all of the black, nasty, ugly things that have happened in history. And I can stare at that until my heart turns cold and my tongue turns bitter. Or I can say, well, this was a great evil. I can either stare at it and be consumed by it, or I can celebrate its reduction and move forward productively and positively into the future. And we've all had the, my ancestors, my ancestors were enslaved. I'm half Irish. They happen to be enslaved by uh, Muslims. Now that ended up not being the case after a certain amount of time. And we can either celebrate the progress that we're all making, or we can sit there and be consumed by staring into this Blackmore of history, this, this ugly side of history, and say, that's where we're going to stay, that's where we're going to focus, and then you become, in a sense, consumed by the past instead of beating a clearer path to the future. What you have just shared with us is also something that I, I want, I do share across this nation, and that is the history of mankind is a story of human tragedy. There is no question about that, regardless of what your skin color is. And uh, you are a part of, and um, by uh, the, Bryant is actually my name, that's a whole nother story, I'll, you know, but I too am uh, a quarter, a little bit better, maybe a third Scots-Irish myself. And so when we look at the progress that the Irish made, and I alluded to the Italians as well, they didn't do it. Uh, I wouldn't look at you, if, let's just say that you were a Democrat a progressive liberal Democrat, and I was full Irish myself. I wouldn't call you an evil Irishman, 
because you're a Republican. But that is what happens in the Democrat Party or with the black with the black race. Black people think that I'm evil because I happen to be a black conservative or a black Republican, not realizing that the diversity is the strength. I think the Irish understand this. The Italians understand this. The diversity in the race is the strength. But the monolith becomes something that can become very much disposed of. I was really struck, CL, when you were talking about your father. And I I think we should spend a few minutes talking about fatherlessness. Again, we can focus on the black community where we have uh, north of 70% of kids being born out of wedlock. The white community, it's cooking up around 30%, of course, and and heading up. It's high in the Hispanic communities uh, as well. So this is not solely a black problem. I myself grew up without a father, and it takes a long time to find your feet if you grow up without a father as a man. You need the role model. You need the instruction. You need a way for your natural aggressive enthusiasms as a boy to be channeled into productive outlets so that you are not violent, you are rather energetic and committed to some humane or civilized cause. What is going on with, in in your travels and talking to various communities, what is going on with this fatherlessness stuff? Is it really recognized as powerful, as powerful an influence as it is? I mean, one of the big statistics that really struck me was that if you normalize for single motherhood. In other words, if you if you take that into account when you're looking at statistics, the black-white disparity in crime almost disappears. Now, whether that's coincidental or causal is complicated, but to me, it is one of the greatest tragedies and one of the very hardest to reverse. When you are surrounded uh, by, as a, as a male, and, and, and uh, with too much estrogen and not enough testosterone, there is an imbalance uh, that, that happens there. Um, that's what's happening throughout America. I applaud every single mother who raised her child without that man being there. And I applaud every man who stepped up to the plate and became a father to uh, a child that was not his by natural birth. But this is the thing that, and I think it is a part of the, um, what is it, the blending of the genders and the, the story that's being, being told of the unisex um, move in this country. Uh, we must understand that there is a certain design that was given, as I believe, by the creator of the universe, that there are roles, none subservient to the other, but roles that are important to the other. And when we forget the purpose of someone or something, then abuse of that someone or something is inevitable. And so we are now witnessing the forgotten purpose of why we have different genders, why we do uh, have them to promote the uh, the race of humanity, and we have forgotten that there are, in fact, consequences for forgetting the purpose of who we are and what we are as male and female, regardless of, of your politics on it. The common sense in it is that there must be some type of, let's just say, cosmic design, if not spiritual in their being male and female. 
one without the other does not produce a healthy society. So let's talk about uh, some of the perspectives or ideas or approaches that people can start to think about in terms of trying to turn some of this stuff around, repairing communities, repairing families, repairing race relations. Because, you know, you, you bring up the Irish, is a great point. You know, I've talked on this show about IQ differences between blacks and whites. There were, of course, IQ differences between Irish and non-Irish way back in the day. They're found to be ways to, to close that through better education, through, you know, better families and so on. So what is it that when you go around, and, and I can't recommend your speeches highly enough, man, the fact that you're not rhyming is just killing me. It's killing me. It's killing me, man. I'm, I'm, I'm robbed forever. But uh, it, it's fantastic uh, that the passion and the clarity that you bring to your speeches, I can only uh, envy and perhaps someday hope to emulate. But um, what is it that people can start to think of in terms of the way forward to try and deal with some of these issues? Telling the truth about the story uh, and then studying Americans in particular, white, black, all of us are very ignorant as far as what we uh, consume. We're, and, and that's not to be condescending to anyone. It's just a fact. If you want to hide money, put it in a book. Nobody opens books anymore. <laughs> you'll Google something. You know, <laughs> you, you'll Google it. Uh, and kids uh, have this instant access. And, and I'm not saying that I, I'm against, I mean, of course, I have all this stuff here. I showed you the other day the type of setups that I have here in my home. Couldn't even figure out how to talk to you the other day, you know, as far as that was concerned. So I have all these gadgets and, and, and we're, we're governed by that. But the fact of the matter is, when you actually crack open a book, you have to take the time to actually turn that over, what you're reading in your mind. I think we have uh, a society now that is, is fed a narrative purposely in some cases and without reading the, the, the author for yourself. The amazing thing is your mind, your creative mind cannot paint that picture for you. But when you Google it, when you look at it like that, you, you have an instant uh, uh, note of how it is supposed to be or, or what they think you should think it is. But when you hear radio, when you listen to programs like we're on right now, uh, when you read a book, the creative mind begins to paint that picture for itself. So to tell the story, tell true story. The Republican Party doesn't tell their story. Most kids will think that Abraham Lincoln was a was a Democrat. You know, mo most kids, uh, you know, that they, he would have to be, couldn't possibly have been a Republican and free the slaves. There's just no way. Uh, they don't know that the first congressmen and black congressmen and senators to uh, both houses were black, uh, were, that were black, were Republicans. They don't know that Carol Mosley Braun was the first Democrat senator elected in the Democrat Party. And the second one that the Democrat Party ever elected was Barack Obama. They don't know that. And, and, so, uh, and, and so Republicans are the evil ones, but the Democrats are the ones with the history of oppression in this country. That is the absolute truth. Yeah, people still think that the KKK has something to do with the Republican Party when it was the terrorist arm of the Democrats. Uh, and uh, it is this, this uh, rewriting or misquoting of history. You know, we are not, you know, sovereign independent entities that somehow have a connection to perfect knowledge. We are shaped by the narratives we are fed, our beliefs, and therefore our emotions and our passions are very much dependent on the changing winds of the stories that we hear. And if the stories are lies, you know, we build our, um, our church, so to speak, 
on sand rather than rock. And the communication of truth is essential to the reduction of tensions. If we can meet in reality, if we can meet in truth, then we can celebrate where we are rather than use stories and narratives as weapons to cut each other down, to divide, to antagonize, the end of which I scarcely shudder to to look at the path that that could take America and the world as a whole. When Thomas Jefferson told us in our founding document, the Declaration of, the Declaration of Independence, that we are endowed with uh, certain unalienable rights given to us by our creator, I don't know whose face, what color that face was that he may have had in his mind when he penned those words. But I can tell you this. The day that he penned those words, he guaranteed that the day would come when the son of Irish immigrants and the son of former slaves would be having this conversation in a free America. He guaranteed that old white man guaranteed that that day would come. And let us celebrate that. Let us tell the story of how we evolved from that to where we are. We can always unscab the sores that are trying to heal in this nation, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're unscabbing those sores that are trying to heal, and that's for a purpose as well. Because as long as we are having to put salve on that, and the progressive liberals are the ones administering that salve, then They keep the slave, as I told you, in a state of looking to them for comfort. Slave does not necessarily seek freedom. Slave seeks comfort from its pain and perhaps even its humiliation. And uh, that's that's where we should be. That's where we should be headed. But unfortunately, I think we're headed towards civil war uh, in this nation. Well, of course, I hope that uh, conversations like this can do uh, our level best to attempt to reduce uh, tensions. I really, really want to thank you, uh, Reverend Bryant, today. Please, everybody, check out the website, the C.L. Bryant, that's B-R-Y-A-N-T, clbryantshow.com. We'll put the links to all of this below. You can follow the good Reverend on twitter.com forward slash Reverend, sorry, Rev C.L. Bryant. Thank you so much, C.L. It was a great pleasure to chat today. I hope we can do it again. God bless you and keep you. I'll have you on my show soon. 